welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Steve Cropper with the title track of his new album, Fire It Up. Of course, I've got a huge pleasure to welcome Steve to the Strange Brew Podcast today where we talk about his journey in music over the last 60 years. Steve is someone who doesn't really need much of an introduction, one of the greatest guitars in music history and just an amazing songwriter as well. And he's got a great new album out. So let's hear my chat with Steve. Thanks so much for agreeing to uh, talk to me, Steve. Um, Obviously, you've got a new album, Fire It Up, and you've described this as your first proper solo album since your debut uh, album from 1969. Is it it because it's... I think it's because it makes you want to dance. Makes you want to get up and party and dance. And that's what we're trying to do with the first album, with a little help from my friends. A lot of the, a lot of the songs, there's some originals in the uh, original record, but most of them, a lot of things were covered and had already been hits, and I just redid them. The message is very sort of positive as well as getting up. Yeah, and uh, the whole reason for this album came out of being locked down in 2020. And, uh, you know, you can't keep musicians down forever. So <laughs> that's what we did. And the, the thing is that I think, Coming out of this pandemic that we've all been in, people are ready to party and dance. And here's your records. You know, I'm sure they'll go out by a hundred of them, but this is one they'll they'll play more than once. I think the Go Getter is gone. Is another a great track. Thank you. <laughs> go Getter is gone. And uh, was that yep. a, a quite a sort of a, a process where you worked with other musicians and, and writers? Well, <clears throat> let me say this about the album, since we're still on the album. I don't think there's really anything in here that uh, is a uh, lesson in musicianship or any of that kind of stuff. It's just there to groove and get everybody dancing and get them happy and that kind of thing. That's what, what we're doing. So the lyrics of this, uh, I'm kind of proud of that first instrumental. It's called Bush Hog, and most people don't even know what a Bush Hog is. That's fine. <laughs> they didn't grow up on a farm, they're not supposed to. But to set everybody at ease of what it really is, it's just a very large piece of farm equipment that is an overgrown lawnmower is all it is big enough and large enough to cut down bushes and small trees rather than just grass. Anybody that's around a lawn or knows what a lawnmower does. And uh, I think it was the record company's idea that it'd be better if you named the album, because we went through several titles. If you named it one of the songs, titles in the, in, in the album itself. And that's when I looked over and I said, fire it up, man, let's fire it up. We're going to fire it up in 2021. <laughs> and that's great, because not only is the musical style positive the lyrics are resonant today like one good turn right and the other one is far uh, far away i can't believe what i'm seeing today it brings a tear to my eye <laughs> that's covering some, kind of the nature of some of the divisions it's well sort of like what's going on today i guess where uh right is wrong and you know everything that's good is bad and all that kind of stuff everything that's bad is good and did you write the lyrics or were you working with them? No, but I should have person. I think Roger Real wrote most of the lyrics, him and John Tibbon. And I, I wrote the grooves and the changes and that kind of thing. So, And then did the solo work on the end. Did you give an idea of, of kind of the lyrical theme or did the music? Well, I didn't work anything out. I made sure that I listened to it, for, really listened to it hard for the first time here in the studio. And the thing about it, we could have made a studio record, got together and waited and made a studio record, but we didn't. And because of lockdown, the thing is that John Tibbon, the co-producer, had these tracks. He has a studio in his house, and we had access to all these tracks. And I had just written them off. I mean, we wrote them a few years ago for another project. And 
I just wrote them off. I said, nah, these will never see light today. So I'll just keep, keep the grooves in my head and go on about my business. So when John said, do you want to finish these up? I said, well, not really. He said, what if I get a singer and finish? I said, you have to play me something he's done. And he played me Roger. And I went, where's that guy been all my life? Pretty awesome. And you have to understand that this is a trick of this album. All of these songs, and I think we're going to, I don't know if we're going to say it on the album or not. It was all done through an iPhone. Not a record, not a studio mic at all. That's, it sounds like some you know, $15,000 vintage mic, but it's not. All done with an iPhone. What I need to do is find out from Roger exactly what iPhone he's singing to. <laughs> it's got a great sound to it. Yeah, it really does. His voice is incredible. And for that to be recorded on an iPhone blows my mind. Of course, it was mixed on Pro Tools, mixed down to that, but it didn't change the sound any. I mean, he still sounded the same. Our main endeavor was to make it exactly like the way it was. And so I don't, it doesn't, when I hear it back, it doesn't sound like a pandemic album, but that's where it came from, basically. It's a great period for the album because fingers crossed, you know, we're getting out of it. So it's kind of an album that we need now. The whole album has a positive thought to it, and that's pretty good.
mentioned your debut album with a little help from my friends right how does the process for recording that album compare to this well <laughs> it's hard to say baby because of the lockdown we were restricted to certain recording and then in the days of uh, with a little help from my friends we were restricted in what we were working with <laughs> you know we had a limited amount of mics and uh most of that album was done with uh I think we had a four track by then. I'm not sure. I don't remember. We, we must have because I overdubbed a bunch of stuff. And a lot of those tracks were cut in L.A. at Leon Russell's studio in his house. And so these tracks were done in Levi, in, uh, in John Tibbins' house in his studio. So that is a major connection, I think. First album, we had Buddy Miles playing drums on some of it. Uh, Leon Russell played piano on some of it. Uh, Carl Reddle played bass on some of it. And, uh, you know, when I got back to Memphis, uh, I continued on with the record. We had the Barcase. Some of the guys, most of the guys that went down in the plane were on it. You know, that that sort of thing. And I mean, there is a connection if I've sat down and really thought it all out.
in the Marquee. So were they your first band? No, the first first band was uh, was later turned out to be the Marquees. The Marquees is two different two, two different bands entirely. Right. So the Marquees was a band that came out of high school, just like we did. And uh, I think their main influence was uh, David Porter found those guys, heard them play and brought them in the studio. And I remember when he brought uh, a bunch of high school students in to do that soul finger. And it had about, I don't know, 10 or 15 students show up after school. And we had them in the studio and put a mic over the top of them and, and said, soul finger, <laughs> big record, big record. So your first big hit was last night, The Marquis. You're so correct. Our first hit was coming out of high school, not immediately out of high school. I think we graduated in, what, 59 and 61 was when we had the, the record in the summer, last night. And uh, they made us change the name of the group, which I think turned out to be pretty good. The original name of the group was the Royal Spades, all about a Royal Spade flush in poker, which is in those days, that was the highest hand you could have. It beat all the other three three suits of cards. Clubs, hearts, diamonds. You weren't on guitar on that track, were you? No, I wasn't. There was no guitar on that track. I played the organ, not the organ solo, but I played a whole note on the organ. And I can hear me on the, <laughs> the thing is I'm very critical of myself. I forgot to come in the second time. So I come in two weeks late. I think, oh, it's another solo. Okay. <laughs> so I'm holding down the note because Smoochie, Jerry Lee Smoochie Smith, the piano player, could not play a solo and hold a note down at the same time. So I held it down for him. And there's a trick for that that came out later. But uh, And Booker used to use that a lot. He'd hold a note down, wedge it with a book of matches, and and get up and put his hands in his pocket and walk around the club, and people would go nuts. <laughs> that organ is playing itself. <laughs> so I've seen that happen many times. Was it through, through that that you got in with Stacks, although I think it was satellite yeah. time, wasn't it? Originally it was satellite. And after a, a letter from some lawyers that said there's already a record company called Satellite, we had to change it. It didn't change the record shop. That had nothing to do with the record shop. So it stayed Satellite Record Shop forever. But we had to change. And they, I remember they set up all night long. They, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axon set up all night long and finally came up with ST Stewart AX Axon Stacks, <laughs> which implied a stacks of record, a stack of records, which I don't know. It is. Now there's a, potato chip out called Stacks, S-T-A-X. <laughs>
it doesn't seem that long span of time since you had that huge hit with the marquees and then you're in the house band at Stacks. Well, the way that happened was that I took the job at the record shop to get close to the studio. And one day, Mrs. Axton goes to her brother, Jim Stewart, and says, you're going to have to start paying Steve. He's spending more time in the studio than he is in the record shop. So they make word kind of deal. And so, Jim, I started getting my check from Jim from Stax Records. It was Booker T's riff, wasn't it? And then the band kind of augmented it. Yep. Green Onions. Yep. Booker had played me that riff a couple of weeks before prior. And I reminded him of it. And he played it to me. He said, this might be a good vocal song. This might be good for a record. And so when I asked him, do you have anything for the B-side? We said, no. Uh, we looked kind of dumbfounded. And I just remembered. I said, Booker, you played me a riff that was pretty catchy couple of weeks ago. He said, well, come down to the organ. I'll play a couple. And, and he, when he played Green Onions, I said, that's it. And four tracks, four takes later, we had the song Green Onions. So who knows what made it a hit? I have no idea. It's still played today. still sounds good today. It's fresh. It still sounds fresh. Yeah. There you go. It sounds fresh. You're, you're correct. I love hearing it on the radio. And Booker told Duck and I one time in New York, he said, you know, I'll never get tired of playing that song. Wow. Pretty special.
And I must mention your songwriting. So, uh, Carla Thomas, I've Got No Time To Lose, was that one of the first well, hits that you had as a songwriter? Uh, yeah, Carla was pretty good, but that was a ploy on my part because I was known as an instrumental guy, and Jimster did not want to hear anything I'd written lyrics to. And I've been writing lyrics since I was about 14 years old. So what did I do? I got his first singer, Carla Thomas, his favorite singer. And I said, Carla, I've got an idea for a song I think you'd be interested in. And she did, and she told him she wanted to cut it. And that was the biggest selling record she had since her hit Gee Whiz, which was about a year later, a year and a half later. She had out two or three follow-ups that didn't make it. So did that give Jerry Wexler the confidence to kind of uh, bring artists to you? Because I think Wilson Pickett was one, yeah. of, those, one of those artists that was brought down. And, and obviously in the midnight hour, he's mind-boggling. I remember the, the the day the decision went down to not do any outside recording. That means nobody that's not signed to the label. And so I go to Jim and I sit down with Jim, just the two of us. I said, Jim, I'm on a roll here with Wilson Pickett. <laughs> he said, Steve, I can't help you. He said, we're making the policy, no more outside recording. And I said, you know, the next thing I was supposed to do, the next song I'd already heard was ready for was Mustang Salad. So Jerry, being the businessman he is, took Wilson down to Muscle Shoals and cut Mustang Salad. It's incredible how, how much you all packed it. Yeah, well, we were all doing the same thing. And I wound up doing several sessions down at Muscle Shoals because those guys played just like we did for the same reason. They wanted to get a hit record. They played on a lot of artists, but they, you know, they made really, really good records.
knock on wood and the, the first version that being with Eddie Floyd. Well, what was the spark of him for it? You know, Eddie Floyd and I were a good combination, but that was Al Bell's idea. He said, I, I got a guy, a friend that I know you guys would hit it off. He's a great songwriter and a great artist. You guys would hit it off. And he was right about that. So I first met, I think, Eddie in Washington, D.C. And at the same time, I went up to, uh, from the orders of Jim Stewart, to make an offer to uh, Al Bell to get him to come back. He was a disc jockey at the time. And uh, he had been on LOK and went up to Washington, D.C. and worked, worked up there with him. And uh, I was losing my best friend. And I said, we need a guy like Al Bell. So Jim couldn't offer him a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of money, but he offered him a vice president of Stacks. And so Al went for that and later became president of Stacks. And this is what it is. And he took it and took it to its hilt and did, did wonders with it. Great guy. But I think his knowledge of being a disc jockey and knowing what the fans wanted, what his audience wanted, that was a big help to Al. And he knew exactly what to sell them or tell them or do whatever. Thunder, lightning. 
going back, I thought it's Reading coming in and, and playing these arms of mine. Right. And it must have been obvious that you were. Well, we were there to record Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers coming off a big hit called Love Twist, and they couldn't come up with a follow-up. So it was Jerry Wexler and Bill, and uh, Gawkins' idea, who was managing Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers, to bring them to stacks to see if we could get an instrumental hit, because we already had three or four hits instrumentalized. Burnt Biscuits and Green Onions and, and Last Night. And uh, Otis was the lead singer, was the singer in that band on, when they were on the road doing live shows. In those days, everybody had to have a singer, even Booker T and the MGs. David Porter was our singer at one time. And uh, everybody had to have a singer because you couldn't do a whole show, three-hour show with one hit. You had to do everybody else's hits too. So Otis was the singer in the band and kept bugging Al Jackson, our drummer, about me hearing him. And he said, I've already told that guy that uh, you wouldn't have time to hear him. You only held those auditions on Saturdays. And uh, at the end of the session, because we had broke a little early, Al came up and said, you know, I told you about that guy during the session. I said, yeah. He said, would you come and get him off my back? He's bugging the hell out of me. <laughs> Just come down and listen to him. Take five seconds out of your time and listen to him and get him off my back. I said, okay. So I brought him, I, I said, bring him down to the piano. So I said, I said, well, play something. He said, I don't play piano. I play a little guitar. I don't play piano. He said, give me some of them church chords. You play piano? I said, not enough just to write with a little bit. I said, you talking about, it was six, eight triplets, or church chords, they call it, quads. <laughs> he started singing these songs of mine, and I stopped. He said, you don't like my song? I said, I love your song. I want Jim Stewart to hear, hear your voice. So I went up to the control room and grabbed Jim. I said, stop whatever you're doing. You got to hear this guy sing. And he did, thank God. And so the next thing we knew, he said, get the band back together. We've got to get this down on tape. The next day, we were cutting the flip side for these arms of mine. Hey, baby, or whatever Otis had, I forget what he had. But, you know, to this day, I still don't know what happened to Johnny Jenkins. I probably was told back in those days, and I forgot. I'll ask around and find out, because I do care about it, you know. But he he played on uh, he played guitar on these arms of mine, and I played piano. These arms of mine. They
One of the guitar licks you're so well known for is Soul Man. Really added to that track well, on guitar. That came about because I was uh, in the control room mixing and Isaac Hayes shows up and he said, Steve, I hate to, I know you don't like to be bothered, but I know David and I have written a hit for tomorrow's session, but I can't come up with an intro. Could you take five seconds to five minutes and just come down and, and come up with, help me write an intro? And I said, okay. So I hook up my guitar, go come down and hook it up. And I said, well, play something. He said, no, you play something. I said, no, you play something. He played a set of changes and I started playing those licks and that's it. He said, that's it. Okay. It took us about two minutes to come up with it. And we played it the next day. And uh, I don't know where I got the idea to play the down and with a with a make it sound like a slide with a with a cigarette lighter I had in my pocket, but I did. And uh, the intro is one thing, and then in the middle, down and where uh, on the second verse, I think uh, Sam says, "Play it, Steve." And I mix the record, I, and I tell people they don't want to believe me, and I don't care. But I didn't pay any more attention to the song because Sam had said, "Play it, Steve," than any of the other takes. It's just that that particular take that went out was the best take, best performance. And he happened to say it during that. He probably hates himself for saying it, but anyway, he did. So I tell people, I've been the other half of play it for a long time. A decade later, covered in a, a new generation with the Blues Brothers that yeah. you're a part of as well.
final track is Otis Redding sitting on the dock of the bay. I just think it's, um, again, just a, a timeless track and, and very poignant. The spark of that, I think, was originally Otis, wasn't it? Well, uh, you know, that song itself, <clears throat> we had been looking for a crossover record for a long time for Otis. We knew he was big in Europe. He wasn't as big in the States at all, even with all the pop festival, whatever we've done. He was very big in, in Europe and in, in a lot of demand. And we had gone over there and did it and uh, did the Stax Boat Tour in 67. And we came back over here and one of the first concerts we did was the Monterey Pop Festival, which worked out. But, uh, you know, and, and they waited. They wanted to hear Otis Redding. Well, that's all well and good, but that's just one group of people. <laughs> United States is a big country. So anyway, I, you know, what made that record, And we knew it was a crossover. And the thing was it got, because I guess because of his untimely death, they played that record more than they would have otherwise. And I, I don't think it was any bigger hit because of it. I think it would have hit anyway. They said if he hadn't died, their song would have never made it. I disagree with that. We knew that song was a hit because we listened to it over and over and over and over. Every day we'd pull it out after a session and listen to it because it was better than anything we played since then. And uh, But we knew it wasn't finished. So that's when I got the idea after his death, it still wasn't finished and didn't have time to wait for backgrounds to finish it up. So I, that's when I got the idea of the seagulls and the sea in the way, ocean waves. It was mixed on six track, basically. Four track plus two track. So that's six tracks going. And the two track had uh, seagulls on one track and ocean waves on the other. So I just pulled them up when I wanted to pull them up and I mixed it. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Man. Fire it up. Yeah. Great record and what we need. Thank you. If it makes you wiggle just a little bit, it'll be worth it. <laughs> Take care. All, All right. the best. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in then I watch them roll away again, yeah I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh, I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time I left my home in Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay Cause I've had nothing to live for And look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Everything still remains the same I can't do what ten people tell me to do So I guess I'll remain the same Sitting here resting my bones And this loneliness won't leave me alone Listen, two thousand miles I roam Just to make Dock my home Now I'm just gonna sit At the dock of a bay 
Watching the tide roll away Sitting on a darker bay Wasting Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.